0: um
1: Keep getting better, girl. <laughs> if you have your Bible uh, this morning, I'd ask you to turn with me to Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi two, beginning in verse eleven. The title of my message today is "Ministering to Brokenness." We have a lot of folks around that are going through some hard times, and I want to give you parents and grandparents and great grandparents some. Ammo to use with uh, family members that you can be helpful and uh, you can have a word from God's uh, word for them. Well, let's look together. Malachi 2, beginning at verse 11. In Judah, in Israel, and in Jerusalem, there is treachery. For the men of Judah have defiled the Lord's beloved sanctuary by marrying women who worship idols. May the Lord cut off the nation of Israel, every last man, who has done this, and yet brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Here is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altars with tears and weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings. He doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out. Why has the Lord abandoned us? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made to each other on your wedding day when you were young. But you have been disloyal to her, though she remained your faithful companion, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and in spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard yourself, remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. It is as cruel as putting on a victim's blood-stained coat, says the Lord God Almighty. So guard yourself. Always remain loyal to your wife. Well, over the years, uh, I've had a lot of young couples sit in my office, and their eyes were just kind of sparkling, and uh, their excitement was uh, obviously there. Uh, As they approached their marriage day, they had questions and concerns and and a lot of joy and a lot of uh, uh, thoughts of fulfillment for their life, well, as the years would pass, uh, three years, five years, ten years, uh, some of those same couples would sit in my office at a later date, and the stars were replaced by tears silently mourning the death of their marriage. What happened to those good intentions and high expectations? What happens to those admirable goals for a family uh, with their happiness when when somehow or another uh, things kind of begin to slip and to slide and go in the wrong direction? As one man put it, they are shipwrecked on the high seas of matrimony for which no compass has yet been invented. So often does it happen that Billy Graham has said that the number one sociological problem in America is marriage on the rocks. Uh, What we experience today, Malachi also confronted in his day. It was rampant. Uh, He too saw couples who began their marriage with all of the highest expectations, but who in later days had somewhere or another drifted apart it was becoming an all too common scene in that day in fact in malachi 2:13 the prophet implied that the distress of the times was in large measure due to the general contempt for the solemn obligations of marriage the problems in the land were caused by the patterns in the home Malachi asked, in what way have we caused the problems in the nation by our behavior at home? In answer to that question, Malachi singled out two of those patterns, two marriage maladies. And he dealt with them in the text that I read this morning. The first marriage malady, which Malachi discussed in verses 10 through 12 that we read, is interfaith marriages. Judah has dealt treacherously with God, Malachi said, in that she has married the daughters of a strange God. That is, those who are worshipers of Yahweh married those whose faith was directed toward other gods and pagan beliefs. This action was expressly prohibited in the laws of Israel. In Exodus thirty-four sixteen, God instructed the Israelites not to make any covenant, any covenant of any kind with the inhabitants of the land. And this of course included the covenant of marriage. In Deuteronomy seven two, speaking of the people who dwelled in the land of Canaan, God said, You shall make no covenant whatsoever. With those people and show them no favor. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. God told Israel that they were not going to join in marriage with people of another faith because it was incompatible with their calling as God's chosen people. Now, this concept of the incompatibility of a believer and a non believer is also paralleled in a New Testament passage. Every once in a while, I have somebody ask me, well, where is that verse that says uh, you can't marry somebody from a different religious uh, background? 2 Corinthians 6.14 is the one that I would be speaking of, where it says that a Christian is told not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. The clear teaching of the Bible in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is that we are not to join in marriage with those of a different faith tradition. That raises some basic questions. For one thing, why was this injunction against interfaith marriage disregarded? God says, don't do this. Don't do it. And yet they in that day, And from that day until this day, and in our day, people do it by the millions. They marry people from foreign uh, religious backgrounds and totally different uh, traditions. Why? In the case of Malachi's contemporaries, it was because of the economic advantage of intermarriage. These pagan people had been there a long time. They'd lived in that land for years and years and generations and generations. And they had amassed large sums of money. They had large portions of land that they owned. For these Israelites who were coming out of captivity, they had nothing. They didn't have 20 cents. One of the quickest ways of becoming financially stable was to intermarry with the wealthy pagan families, and they did that. The Israelites were more concerned with financial success than with the obedience to God that they should have had. Financial profit took precedent over spiritual principles. In our day, interfaith marriages are entered into for a variety of reasons. Some people marry an individual of another faith or of no faith because they themselves have not been grounded in the Christian tradition. They don't know much about the Bible. They don't know much about uh, God's will for their life. They just enter in. Their faith is not as important to them, so they just do it. Sometimes physical attraction takes precedent over spiritual concern. When I was in seminary, I had a friend that uh, told me he was going to marry a gal with beautiful legs. And, uh, he's, you know, it didn't seem like he cared about what their face looked like. <laughs> he didn't care about their personality. He didn't care about their faith tradition. He was real interested in their legs. And I thought, good night, if people at the seminary are thinking this way... What about everybody else? In many cases, an interfaith marriage will be entered into because it provides elevation to a higher social status. In others, entering into marriage with an unbeliever or a person of another faith, uh, they feel like they can do that because they're going to change them after they marry them. Now, we could have a few testimonies about that this morning. (laughs) Not a lot of people uh, change much. In some cases, fear of never getting married will cause a person to marry whomever is willing. There are literally millions and millions of individuals in America who for one reason or another have been involved in interfaith marriages. A second question is, what is wrong with interfaith marriages? Well, you are denying the specific command of God. I mentioned both of these verses. In Deuteronomy 7.2, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, the Old Testament and New Testament, say that this is wrong and that we should not do it. Also, an interfaith marriage denies our purpose as Christians. As a Christian, we have been set apart A unique people. Every part of our lives is to glorify God. To join with someone who is outside of the family of faith is incompatible with our calling from the Lord. The third question is, what does this mean for us? To those who are not married, it challenges you to make the matter of a common faith one of your main criteria for choosing somebody that you would marry. And it goes all the way back to your dating life. Every date is a prospective mate. Have you ever heard that? Uh, it's true. You go out with somebody, you say, well, I don't have anything in common with them, but I don't have anything else to do, so I'll go out with them. And uh, you might fall in love with them. And they're from a totally different uh, tradition, spiritually. And you get involved, and then you're involved in a rocky marriage. Since every date is a prospective mate, you need to be careful. You need to know that they have a shared faith in Jesus Christ. This is not old fashioned. I hear some people say, Preacher, that's just old fashioned. It's not old fashioned, it's common sense. And it's what uh, we need to pay attention to. Marriage at its best is an adventurous journey. Starting from the adventure of marriage from two different spiritual stances is the best way of ensuring that the journey will be hazardous. And you need to be careful. To those already in an interfaith marriage, you want to do all that you can to form a a spiritual base that is solid. Well, how do you do that? Well, you pray for them. You try and live the life of Christ before them. You try and witness to them. You try and invite them uh, to things at our church, to our worship services. You try in every way that you know how to build a solid spiritual base together. You try and get them to move closer to the Lord Jesus. Marriage is not just a dynamic duo. It is a holy triangle in which a common faith in God is confessed. In our day, as in Malachi's day, one of the most serious maladies that was obvious was that there was a threat to the sanctity of the home because of those that were not united in a similar spiritual base. All right, number two this morning is impermanent marriages. There's a, this is the second marriage malady that Malachi mentioned in our text this morning that we read a few minutes ago, verses 13 through 16. In verse 13, the prophet stated, And this is another thing that you do. Coupled with their marriages to the women of another faith, the Israelites committed another transgression of equal seriousness when they set aside or divorced the wives of their youth. In verse 14, Malachi says that the covenant of marriage is a sacred covenant before God. When you stood before the minister, when you stood before the uh, church uh, gathering, when you stood uh, and the uh, presiding minister Uh, talked about this being a relationship that you both had not only with each other but with God. Uh, God's presence at your marriage makes it a sacred commitment. It's something that you did with God. Look at verse 15. Didn't God make you one body and one spirit with her? God wanted it to be a permanent union between two people. And to divorce the wife of your youth, Malachi says, is a sign of your disloyalty to her and of your disobedience to God. Then in verse 16, Malachi declares, God hates divorce. God doesn't want his people to be sad. Uh, He doesn't want uh, for two of you that are sitting here this morning, that are thinking about divorcing, thinking about separating. He doesn't want you to be miserable. He doesn't want you to be sad. The scripture says that the Lord wants for us an abundant life, a life that is filled with joy and love and care and concern. That's the the program that God has for us. And he wants us, of course, to enjoy all of those good things. The prophet swept aside those provisions in Deuteronomy for a certificate of divorcement when the man found something wrong with his wife. You know, back then, if the uh, wife burned the toast, the man could say, get out of here, and he'd hand her a little piece of paper saying, I divorce you. And he'd give it to her, and she'd have to just walk out of the house. She didn't get anything. She was just put out in the street on that particular day, for something that would seem to be inconsequential. Well, nowadays, thank the Lord, that has changed. There are relevant words for us today because impermanent marriage is a very, very common phenomenon in our day. In fact, it's more common today than it's ever been in the history of our country. Since 1973, There has been over a million divorces every single year. Three words summarize our challenge today. The first word is proclamation, our attempt to minister to brokenness. Now, folks, we need as a church family and we need as individuals to realize that when there is a divorce, it's two very hurting people. And we need to have a ministry to both of those people. We need to be a church that welcomes people that have been divorced. We need to be a a church family that reaches out to those that have been divorced and tries to pull them into the bonds of our love. I've told you many times I worked with single adults uh, for a number of years in Dallas. We had a large single adult ministry of 900 singles. And some singles would walk in and they'd say, am I welcome here? I'm divorced. And I would say, of course you're welcome, for crying out loud. And they would say, well, they didn't want me in my last church. In fact, they did everything that they could do to get rid of me except say leave. And I said to them, I said, well, we want you here. We'll love you here. We'll try and be family to you in this place. And that was the the byline of our ministry, to reach out to those that were hurting and to minister to brokenness. That is our responsibility. The blur of disillusion of marriage is contrary to the ideal plan of God. We all know that. It's not what God wants. He doesn't want every couple that marries to divorce. That's not his original plan. But... It happens. It happens with great frequency across our land. The second word is perspective. Malachi says that God hates divorce. Well, I discovered as I studied the Old Testament that there are a lot of things that God hates. Uh, Deuteronomy 16 says that the Lord hates idolatry. Zechariah 8 says that God hates those who are involved in perjury. Amos 5 says that God hates the feast days of Israel because the Israelites had corrupted it. Proverbs 6 mentions six more things that God hates. In each case, the same word is used as we find here in Malachi 2.16. God hates every sin not just divorce, and yet some very judgmental people set up divorce as the epitome of sin and the failure for which we cannot be forgiven. I want to say to you this morning that that is wrong, that that is, borders really on being evil. First John nine says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Everybody in this room needs to know that verse so that you can speak to folks that are going through the pain of a divorce to say that God will forgive you, that God loves you, and that we love you. That's the message that we need to be able to share. Divorce is not the primal sin of man. It is simply a way in which folks have fallen short of God's ideal. And they need to ask for forgiveness. And if they do, God will forgive and will love and will care for them to the ultimate. The third word is preservation. We must be committed to ministering and love to those that have fallen short. And preserve them in the family of faith. We don't want to put them out in the street like they did in those biblical days. We want to be a welcoming family to folks that have been through a hard time. Over the years, many of my closest friends have divorced. And, and the thing that I've tried to do is stand with both of them, not just one of them. Sometimes folks pick out one and they say, well, I'm going to stand with this one. I don't even like that one. That's not the ministry of the church. The ministry of the church is to reach out and to love and to be close to both that are in a hurting situation. When Jesus was confronted by someone who had fallen short of God's ideal, how did he treat them? Did he say, well, you're locked in this thing that you did in the past and there's no hope for you? Did he ever say that? Not once. You read the Bible through, you'll never find that. Did he say, there is no chance for forgiveness for you? Did he ever say that? No, he didn't. In every case, Jesus dealt redemptively with people. In every case, he offered forgiveness to them. In every case, he promised the possibility of a new start, of a chance for a new life, we also must do that for those who have gone through the trauma of divorce. We need to love the most those that have been hurt the most. To those who are not yet married, God's word challenges you to recognize the seriousness of the marriage covenant before you enter into it. To those already divorced, God's word assures you that it is not something from which you will be condemned uh, and a miserable life ahead of you. You need to hear the words of Jesus about forgiveness and inculcation and love and, and treasuring that individual. To those who are married, God's word challenges you to begin practicing the pattern of behavior that will enable you to fulfill God's ideal, and thus experience all of the blessings that marriage has to offer. The things will not be right until in our land until things are right in the homes in our land. And so we want to do everything that we can to help for it to be right. Today, you might uh, be here, you might say, well, you know, every church I've ever been, they've been really down on on divorced people. I want to give a word of welcome to you today. We're glad that you're here, and we want you to be a part of our family. We want you to come and, and share in the blessings of God with us. This is a loving church family. We have invited all sorts of folks to come in, and they have come. And you notice today that the church is full, the early service is growing, and that we really are trying as best we can to do the title of the sermon today, Minister to Brokenness. That's our responsibility, that's our task, that's our ministry. Today, if you're here and you need a church home, you need a place where you can serve the Almighty God above, then we'd invite you to come and join with us and be a part of our family. We'd love to have you come and be one with us. If you are here today and you've not heard a word of grace in a long time, and maybe that's the thing that has held you back from not trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you today to know that Jesus loved you. If you'll ask him to forgive you of your sin and you'll accept Christ as the Lord and Master of your life, then you can be saved, and you can make a public profession of your faith in these moments this morning right here. I'm going to be standing down at the front. If the Lord leads you, you just slip out and slip forward and take a stand for Him who died for you. Let's stand together as we sing.